Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. We're working our way through the, the book of Genesis. Just so you know, after Christmas, it's going to carry on. There's more of Genesis to explore. And we've got now, we had a, quite a slow walk through Genesis 3 because it's so important to understand. And now we're going to spend some time in Genesis chapter 4 from verse 1. I'm going to read this and then we're going to head over to Hebrews because there's a really important part of Hebrews in the New Testament that helps us understand this. So we're going to look at that as well. So let's start with Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, He did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from the land, from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now head over to Hebrews chapter 11 on page 1209. Hebrews chapter 11, page 1209. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's always a really good idea to figure out if the story or something is mentioned in the New Testament. That helps us understand it better. Well, in Hebrews 11, Abel gets and Cain get a mention. Hebrews 11, page 1209. Hebrews 11, and we'll read verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Okay, we're going to stop there, and we'll come back to that a little bit later on. I wonder if you ever have the experience in life where things are happening to you, and they're happening again to you. It's so 
familiar and similar to something that's gone before, it feels like it's a kind of repeat of your life, like an episode in your life. Like a TV show where the same plot line keeps happening, the same thing keeps happening. It's like watching a repeat. Vicky and I watched Sherlock season four the other day. And by the time you get to season four of Sherlock, it feels like watching a repeat. You kind of know what's going to happen. Sherlock will get a case. He'll offend everyone. Watson will go off in a strop. Then Sherlock will show Watson that he really, really needs him. Dr. Watson will come back. He'll be grumpy. But then they'll solve the case together. And then Watson will realize that Sherlock is his only friend. And it happens every season. It's the same thing. It's like watching a repeat. It was just credits roll and there it was, the same thing. It's, it's kind of predictable to the point of being inevitable. And our lives can feel like that, where you think, oh, wait, I've, I've been here before in my life. We've had this argument before. You've had that attitude before. I've got myself into the same relationship issues before or the same conundrum. And and as you see the story playing out, you think to yourself, I know how this is going to go. I've seen it already. My life is like this TV show on repeat sometimes. Maybe you look at your parents. You see their mistakes, the road they took in life. And you see yourself, as much as you don't want to, just taking the same road in life and making the same mistakes that they made. Your personal history is kind of destined to repeat itself, it feels. So are our lives stuck on repeat with our mistakes and failure? Well, Genesis 4 helps us with this because it's a key moment for us to see whether the generation after Adam and Eve will repeat the mistakes of their parents, like some kind of predictable plot. We know um, the path of rebellion that Adam and Eve took in chapter 3, the rebellion against God that they choose. What about Cain and Abel? Because life carries on outside the garden in in chapter 4, verse 1. Adam and Eve kind of do what they were told to, fill the earth and subdue it. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. It must be hard for Adam and Ab, um, Cain and Abel to be Adam and Eve's kids. It's quite a thing to follow, isn't it? I, I often think of celebrities' children. I think it must be really hard being somebody famous's kid because everyone always asks, well, are they going to do the same as their parents did? You know, the, the dad was a drug-fueled rock star. Well, are they going to be a rock star? Are they going to take the same kind of path? And celebrities don't help their kids because they always give them stupid names. Have you noticed this? It's like, if it's not hard enough being a celebrity's kid, um, Mark Bolan, T-Rex, his son, Roland. Roland Bolan. I mean, come on. <laughs> David Bowie's son. Sorry. Sorry, Bowie. I mean, come on. It's hard enough. So we look at Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's son, and we think, are they, are they just going to repeat their parents' mistakes? Are they going to go a different way? Well, as we start, Cain and Abel, Abel well, they carry on the family business, don't they? Abel looks after... Uh, livestock, um, uh, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, livestock in verse 4, sorry, verse uh, 2. Now Abel kept flocks, that's what he does. And then you've got Cain, he's working the soil. Do you remember, remember Adam and Eve um, in the garden? He was to name the animals, so there's the kind of, including the livestock. And he was to work the soil, work the ground, and the same thing is happening here. So so starting to look like a bit of repeat. Is this a repeat of the one where Adam and Eve disobey God? Well, in Cain and Abel, the Bible lays out for us two fundamental ways that life 
goes on after Adam and Eve. When it comes down to it, the Bible says, in life there's the way of Cain and the way of Abel. One which feels like a tragic repeat, but the other has the possibility of something different. So that's how we're going to approach this passage. Those two people, Cain and Abel, those two paths of life. Let's start by having a look at Cain and his repeated rebellion and repeated rebellion. Have a look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Okay, so we've got the two sons of Adam and Eve, and they bring two offerings to God. Offerings that are kind of connected to their job. So Cain, who worked the soil, brings fruits of the soil to God. Abel, more of a sheep kind of guy, brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock. Now it's interesting here that Adam and Eve, when they got kicked out of the garden, that didn't mark the end of them relating to God. Now it did mean a split in their relationship with God. So that's why Cain and Abel are bringing offerings. They're a way of trying to fix that split between humans and God. Because God is rightly angry at their family because what they did in chapter 3 was try to take the throne of God for themselves. And so the idea of bringing an offering is bringing the best of what you have, the fruit or the, or the sheep, and bring them and give them to God to try and honor him so that he might accept you. That's what's going on. Will God accept them? That's what they want. Two men, two offerings, but did you notice two radically different responses from God in verse 4, halfway through? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. What's going on with that? Is God just arbitrarily accepting one and rejecting the other? Was the sacrifice of lamb better than the sacrifice of fruit? I tend to prefer lamb over fruit. Maybe God prefers lamb over fruit. Is, that, is it just his preference? Look carefully at God's response. He looked on favor on what? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. Same pattern with Cain. Cain and his offering. It's important to remember that the offering kind of isn't the thing. It doesn't stand alone. The offering comes from a person, Abel and Cain and his offering. And God seems interested not so much in whether it's a lamb or whether it's fruit, but in the persons who bring these offerings. So still, we haven't answered our question. Well, what's the difference then between these two men and their offering? Why does God accept one and not the other? Well, in verses 6 to 7, God lays out to an angry Cain how he could be accepted. Have a look at verse 6. The Lord kind of explains what's going on. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. If you don't do what is right, if sin overtakes you, you won't be accepted. Hmm. So was, was Abel without sin then? You know, he always did what was right. He was kind of perfect, and that's why he was accepted. But Cain was a sinner, and that's why he wasn't accepted. Is that what's going on? Well, it can't, that can't be right. 
I mean, Abel was a sinner as well. We know that because he was making an offering. He wouldn't have had to make an offering to God if he wasn't a sinner. He's a human too. So it's not that Abel was perfect. So what does this mean? Doing what is right to be accepted refers to offering, making an offering with the with a right heart attitude to God. So if you think about it, Cain did the same thing as Abel on the surface. He did what was right. He made an offering. And yet God says that there was something in what Cain did in the offering that wasn't right. Not a technique issue. And it's by Cain's actions after the offering that we begin to see his true colors. It begins to reveal his heart attitude towards God. First thing, do you notice what happened straight after in verse 5? Cain was angry. His face was downcast. He gets angry with God after his offering is rejected. He could have responded very differently if his heart was seeking after God. He doesn't get on his knees. He doesn't cry out for mercy. He doesn't seek God's forgiveness. He gets angry at God. Strops. That tells you something. And then God gives him um, this warning. He told him, tells him what he could do right. Um, he warns him about sin and says, you can be accepted if you do this. How does Cain respond to that? What does it reveal? Does he seek after God? Does he go, okay, God, I'm going to seek you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get on my knees. Cain, watch out for sin. Do what is right and you'll be accepted. Okay, God. Abel, let's go for a field trip. Kills him. That's how he responds to God's warning. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. That escalated quickly. He murdered his brother. There aren't many other humans kicking around at this point. The family, jealousy. And we see Cain's true colors. See, it's not, thinking then again about the sacrifice, it's not that we have two men with two sacrifices coming with the same heart attitude of reverence and faith and love for God. At first it looks totally even, but then we see Cain's heart revealed in his anger, in when he goes out after God's warning and murders his brother. It's just that when Cain actually made that offering in the first place, God could see that already. It just took us a while to notice it. That's why God didn't accept him. He could see that Cain's heart wasn't really going after God. Two men, but two radically different attitudes towards God. And this is then confirmed by what we read in Hebrews. Hebrews helps us get under the skin. Okay, help us, Hebrews. What was the difference between Cain and Abel? Go back to Hebrews 11. Keep your finger in Genesis. We'll go back, although it's not that hard to find, is it? Uh, But Hebrews 11, page 1209. 1209, Hebrews 11. Be looking out. What does Hebrews tell us is going on that makes Abel different? Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel brought brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. What's the difference? Faith. Abel had faith. 
by faith he was commended as righteous. That means by faith he was accepted by God. Though a sinner, he wasn't perfect, just like Cain, because of his faith in God, his trust in God, God accepted him. Now, we're going to explore that a little bit more later. So if you don't understand yet, don't worry. But can you see that there's a difference of heart approach to God? And then that confirms then our suspicion about Cain, going back to Genesis. It implies what that Cain didn't make the offering with faith. Oh, he did the thing. He went through the religious motions, but he wasn't really coming to God by faith. He wasn't coming hoping in God, longing for mercy, trusting that God would accept him. And that's a warning to us. Being in church, bringing our religious devotion, if that's done without a desire for God, God can see right through us. We can just go through the motions. Now, do you remember if you were around last week in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 gave us a hint about the two ways of life that we're discovering here, where God laid out that in human history it would be dominated by two ways of life, two lines, the line that follows the snake in rebellion against God and the line of the woman. They would clash, but the line of the woman would win. That was Jesus, by the way. The line of people who listen to Satan, but then the the line of people who say no to rebellion and yes and have faith in God. So now in Genesis 4, do you see those two lines developing? And we see them clashing where one murders the other. Okay then, what have we found in the next generation after Adam and Eve? Do we see them throwing off the shackles of their parents' mistakes and carving out a new path of hope and possibilities? Not in Cain. In Cain, we see the path of humanity which repeats over and over again rebellion against God. With each generation, from Cain on, there's this disappointing, tragic repetition of what went before. And Cain's path is by nature the path that we have chosen. Cain's path is our path. Which is why that that starts to make sense of our lives. That's why we find ourselves carrying on, repeating the attitude towards God that's lived out all over the world. It's not very original, rebelling against God. We all do it. Generation after generation, it happens. We like to think of ourselves, though, as advanced in 21st century Britain. We're we're very proud of being progressive. I mean, who wants to be regressive? It's hard not to want to be progressive. It's, It's what we are. We're advanced. I wonder how, if you've heard it said, uh, particularly recently, I hear this a lot. Uh, there's no place for that in 2018. There's no place for that today. Who thinks that in the 21st century? Interesting idea. I just want to think about that. That by virtue of being in 2018, we're better people than people in the 1990s or the 1800s or whenever. They were just kind of morally inferior, but we're better now. If you live in 2018 just by being here, you're kind of endowed with the ability to live a better life, think better thoughts, have better morals than those savages of yonder year. When you think about it, it's a very arrogant attitude. Because what we often mean, especially when it's said here in Britain, is 
we're better than that in 2018 in the West. Which is a very arrogant way of thinking. I want to say, well, says who? How come we're better? How do you know we're more advanced? That things are on this trajectory to kind of always better ourselves. Now, I don't want to deny that there's a lot that's changed, even progressed over the centuries. But before we just get ahead of ourselves, Genesis 4 steps in and goes, sorry, but underneath it all, it's like watching a plot repeated over and over again. That's kind of human history. There's nothing new. There's nothing new, especially when it comes down to our attitude to God. Because generation after generation repeats with a, over and over again with a heart that doesn't have faith in God. We just find more modern ways of doing it. In Roman times, they would leave unwanted children on rubbish heaps. We head them off in the womb behind closed doors in hospitals. Instead of going round to someone's house and slagging them off to their face, we sit in the comfort of our own home and we just kind of jeopardize them on social media. Last week was Armistice Day, where we remember the fallen in the world wars. And every year it strikes me. There's a, there's a kind of cruel irony in World War I being called the war to end all wars. Because it was so soon followed by World War II. It was so horrific that it was, it was inconceivable after World War I that it could ever happen again. But you know what also? There was a real optimism in the air. There's a lot of scientific progress, especially actually come out of the um, ingenuity of World War I. There's a lot of optimism that we're going to learn the mistakes of the past and it's going to be better. Now, someone who thought this way was the author H.G. Wells. He, he looked to the future after World War I and he felt really optimistic. Listen to this. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations? That it will achieve unity and peace? That it will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know? Going on from strength to strength in ever-widening circles of adventure and achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Optimistic. Progress. That was 1937. Two years later, the Second World War comes. And it becomes very clear that man is not progressing. And H.G. Wells changes his tune. In spite of all my dispositions to a brave-looking optimism, I perceive that the universe is now bored with man and is turning a hard face to him. I see him being carried less and less intelligently and more and more rapidly along the stream of fate to degradation, suffering and death. The spectacle of evil in this world has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. And if we think that we've seen the last great war, we are very naive. World War I was followed by World War II. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden was followed by Cain. And Cain was followed by the rest of us. Let me show you how Cain repeats his parents' mistakes and actually makes them worse. It's really striking, the similarities. Think about it. Cain, he's just the kid of the child of Adam and Eve, so he knows what happened in the garden. I'm sure they told. 
He's just one generation away. So you'd think being the son of the people who screwed up the whole world would be warning enough not to do the same. And then God, after, after the whole offering thing, he warns Cain about sin crouching at your door. Sin is there. He, said, he basically says, watch out for the serpent, just like God had, had given Adam and Eve the command in the garden. But like his parents, Cain brings death into the world. But can you see how he takes it a step further? The way he brings death into the world is to murder his brother in cold blood. He repeats and worsens. And then in verse 9, God comes to question Cain. Do you remember in the garden when God came to question Adam and Eve? What did he say? He said, where are you? In verse 9, he says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? See the repeat. But just like his dad, Cain fobs God off. Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. As if God's stupid, honestly. Am I my brother's keeper? He lies and he abdicates responsibility. But like in episode one with Adam and Eve, God just sees right through it and he brings what? Curses on him. Do you remember that from Adam and Eve in chapter three? So God says, the Lord said, uh, it's in chapter, uh, sorry, four verse 10. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Do you remember Adam's curse? That God cursed the ground so that work would be difficult. And here it is again. The same kind of curse falls on Cain. It's just a repeat. The ground will not give crops and you will not have a home. And you just want to shout, Cain, show some remorse. Like, do what your dad didn't do and say sorry. You just murdered your brother. But just like his parents, instead of getting on his knees, he's actually more interested um, in saving his own skin. Uh, Verse 13, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you drive me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. He doesn't say, you're right, God, I just killed my brother. It's, ah, someone might come and kill me. He just doesn't get it. But God is kind and merciful and protects him anyway. He says, no, no one will kill you. And just as Adam and Eve had to leave the garden in Eden through the east gate, Cain is driven further out of the land of Eden, east. Verse 16, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Do you see? It's a repetition. And then it's worse. He's even further away from God. So Cain says to us this afternoon, we are not progressing. It's repeat, repeat, and make it worse. And you and I, we're experiencing this repeated rebellion in our lives. Why do you think you find yourself doing things wrong that you don't want to do? Just stop doing it if you don't want to do it. But it's not that simple, is it? Why do you find yourself repeating your own mistakes? Or the mistakes of generations before you, your parents. Haven't you learned their lessons? What's wrong with you? Why have we not made poverty history? Or eradicated war? Or sibling jealousy or murder? Is it just a matter of education? No, we know these things are wrong. We just repeat. 
Because life in the line of Cain is tragic repetition. So he warns us today, whether we rebel but try and cover it up with kind of religious observance, like he did at the beginning with the offering, or whether we just throw off the mask and just go for it, living in the line of Cain will push us further and further away from God's presence until there's no going back. That's Cain. Let's think about Abel. Abel, where faith lets the blood do the talking. Faith lets the blood do the talking. I wonder if you've ever got on the underground. You sit down, you're waiting for the train to go, you're looking out the window, and the train starts moving. And it rapidly occurs to you that you are not going in the direction that you thought you were going to. In fact, even more entertaining is watching somebody else realize that they're going in the wrong direction. They're like, oh, oh, and they're going that way, and we're going that way. It, It freaks them out. Now, There's something about this, as we think about living in the line of Cain, this repetition that it feels like we've got on this train and we are going in a direction that we now see we do not want to be going in. But we feel stuck on this train, on this repetition, generation after generation. Are we just stuck then on the train, forever repeating our rebellion? Genesis 4 says, no. There is a different way. There's the way of Abel. There is a choice that God holds out to us as to which son of Adam our life is going to follow. So we've seen Cain's way. Let's have a look at the way of Abel. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 to understand that a bit more. I told you it would be helpful. Back to Hebrews 11, page 1209. And let's, we've, we've got to listen to Abel speak to us. We've got to listen to what he's saying. Hebrews 11, verse 4, page 1209. Look at the end of that verse, Hebrews 11, verse 4. It says, By faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead, which is very impressive. But there's something about his life and the way he approached God that should speak to us this afternoon. What does he say? Well, it says, first of all, um, that he came to God at the beginning by faith. Let's think about that. What is this faith that made Abel acceptable to God? We can get funny about faith sometimes. We can treat it like some kind of substance that you have faith and I don't have faith, like it's some kind of magic thing. It's not really that complicated. Faith is the choice to trust and hope in someone or something. That's what faith is. It's, it's having a confident hope. It's having good reason to believe and bank on someone and pin your hope on them or a thing. You're having faith in your chair right now. You sat down and went, I've got good reason to believe this brand new chair is not going to give way. Sit down. That's what it is. It's faith, but faith in God. So when Abel brought his offering to God, he trusted and hoped that God would accept him. Not because he was a better brother or because his offering was better. That would be having faith in himself, wouldn't it? If he was a better guy. The difference between him and Cain was that he trusted that God would accept him out of God's sheer grace. That's what it means to come by faith, saying, God, I'm banking it all on you. That's the first thing it tells us, he came by faith. Second, it says that by faith he was commended as righteous. What does that mean, righteous? It means that despite Abel's sin which made him 
unrighteous, somehow, by approaching God by faith, God said, he's righteous. Somehow. Righteous means being good, good, all the time good in God's eyes. Really good. Acceptable. But go back to uh, the scenario in Genesis where God has just kicked humanity out of his presence for their sin. They are very clearly unrighteous. But then Abel comes to God by faith and God says, righteous, you can come near. How does that happen? Well, Abel speaks to us through the centuries and this is what he says. Imagine Abel here speaking to us. He says, there are two paths of life. There's mine or my brother's. Choose the path I took. Come to God by faith. Seek forgiveness from him and you will find it. He will count you righteous. Say you're good, you're acceptable. Abel says to us, you're not stuck. You're not destined to follow my brother's path of repeated rebellion. Rebellion. You have a choice. By faith, choose the path of life where you throw yourself on the mercy of God. That's what Abel says, because that's what he did. So I want to ask, do you hear Abel speaking to you this afternoon, saying to you that you, yes, you, can be accepted by God if you come to him by faith, trust, and hope in him, not in yourself? It turns out Abel does a lot of speaking, which is quite surprising given that he doesn't say a word back in Genesis 4. Did you notice that? He doesn't actually say anything. But actually, he does say something. Back in Genesis 4, he said something. Okay, go back again. See, the New and the Old Testament fit right together. Go back to Genesis 4 and notice what Abel kind of says. Page 6, Genesis 4, verse 10. Keep your finger in Hebrews because we're going back there. Hebrews 4 verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is speaking, Abel's blood, from the ground. And God hears Abel's blood. What does it say? It says, guilty. Abel's blood tells God what's happened to Abel. Abel's blood cries out from the ground and it cries out murder. It cries out Cain is guilty. He's repeated and deepened his parents' sin. That's what Abel's blood cries out in Genesis 4 and God hears it. Now back in Hebrews, that blood points us forward to some more blood that does some talking. This time go to Hebrews 12, just a couple of pages on. I love how the new and the old fit together. This is brilliant. Uh, Hebrews 12, page 1211. It's almost like there's one author behind it. Hebrews 12, 12 page 1211, and verse 24. Um, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, You have come to God, and then verse 24, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out that Cain was guilty. 
And in a sense, it cries out that we're all guilty as we repeat generation after generation the same heart attitude as Cain. But along comes Jesus' blood poured out on the cross. And it speaks a better word. Instead of saying guilty, Jesus' blood cries out innocent. Let me explain that. This solves a conundrum uh, that someone asked me about the other day as we've been exploring Genesis. It was a great question. She said to me, look, I get that God forgives and I get that God is just and angry with us for our attitude of Cain, our rebellion. So how can he forgive us without violating his justice? Don't I still deserve punishment even though God wants to forgive me? How does God deal with that? Let's put it in the language of Cain and Abel. Okay, I get that we're to come with faith like Abel, with a hopeful trust that God will accept us, but what about justice for my sin, being like Cain? Even if we approach God with faith, does God just sweep justice under the carpet and say, don't worry, I'll pretend you're righteous? That's where the blood of Jesus speaks up. Can you hear what the blood of Jesus says to God? It says to God about me that Phil can be accepted by you, God, just like Abel. The blood of Jesus says, Phil can be considered righteous, not pretending that he's righteous. Why? Because in justice, the blood of Jesus was poured out instead of my blood. Jesus' blood satisfies the wrath and justice of God. So God can call me righteous, acceptable when I come by faith. Jesus' blood says to God, justice has been done at the cross. Guilt has been paid for. He's innocent. He's innocent. You can accept him. You can accept him. That's what Jesus' blood says. Do you approach God wanting to be accepted by him and let Jesus' blood do the talking? Do you let Jesus' blood do the talking? It's very odd, the idea of blood talking. I get that. It's much better than us talking. Think about it. What do we normally do when we've been found out for something wrong that we've done? We talk. We try and explain ourselves. We try and justify what we've done. We wrap it on. So what do we do when we find out and realize that we've been living the life of Cain, repeating over and over again rebellion against God? We want to talk. We want to explain it away to God, justify ourselves. I didn't mean it. It wasn't that bad. Surely you're not going to hold it against me, God. I'm kind of decent. I'm better than my parents. Look at the good things I've done. I'm, I'm a moral kind of person. Look at my religious stuff. Stop talking. Stop talking. The way of faith lets the blood do the talking. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, it means you stop talking. Stop thinking there's something you can say or do to convince God to accept you. You can't. You stop talking. You let the blood of Jesus do the talking for you. And just as God heard the cry of Abel's blood convicting Cain of his sin, God hears the cry of Jesus' blood totally acquit you for your sin. Do you believe that? Is your faith actually in your offering of moral adequacy and religious observance? No. 
Let the sacrifice of Jesus be your offering. Let his blood do the talking. Do you feel your acceptance by God is just impossible? He could never accept me because of my failure. Be quiet. Let the blood of Jesus do the talking. God will accept you. So God holds out to us a choice today. Follow the path of Cain, repeating humanity's tragic rebellion against God and be driven further away from him. Or you can get off that train. Follow the path of Abel, where by faith you let Jesus' blood do the talking. And by faith you know for sure that today God accepts you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a lot for us to understand and take in. But we do see ourselves in Cain and in our common humanity. Our common humanity is not a pretty thing in many ways. Oh Lord, there's so much good in who we are and what we can achieve. But day after day, generation after generation, we are full of so much hurt and pain that we've caused, that we've suffered from at the hands of others. Lord, we're ashamed of what we are brutally capable of, that even in this room, the things we've thought, the things we've even done, we seem not to be able to learn. We, Lord, we're, we feel like a hopeless case as humans. But thank you that you don't see us that way, not because you see some kind of moral spark within us, but because you're just kind and loving and you came after us and gave us the way of faith. Thank you for coming after us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died on the cross. He poured out his blood. It flowed from his hands and his feet. It landed on the ground. And it cries out to you today that you don't need to punish us because you punished him. So I pray that each one of us here would know and hear you say to us today, I accept you because of the offering of Jesus. Thank you for the blood. Amen.